0: Tuning in to the Pedagogies for Social Justice podcast. Brought to you by a student staff partnership at the University of Westminster, this is a platform for students and educators to exchange knowledge and encourage discussion about the current challenges facing higher education. I'm your host, Kyra, and for this episode, I'll be in conversation with Black Feminist writer and Stuart Hall Foundation researcher, Lola Elofemi. In this interview, we discuss Lola's journey into feminism and how she came to start thinking critically about race and gender, but also liberal feminist theory and action. As she carries out her PhD at Westminster, we discuss the focus of her research and the research process so far, which leads us to unpack the writing behind her book, Feminism Interrupted Disrupting Power. Finally, Lola offers us some insight into how we might begin to decolonize the university through a feminist lens. Hi, Lola. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. It's so nice to finally meet you. Um, how are you doing today?
1: Hello. Um, thank you for having me. I am
0: feeling good today,
1: actually. I'm feeling um, motivated. That's how good. I feel.
0: So I like to start things off with our guests sharing just a little bit about themselves. So first things first, where are you from?
1: I am from North London. I grew up in Edmonton. Um I'm Nigerian. Um yeah, I'm a, I'm very much a North Londoner. That is my that's that's
0: my sphere of London
1: essentially. Uh nice. yes.
0: Yeah and obviously just thinking about maybe kind of like your childhood and then entering kind of like education when at what point do you think you started to think critically about race and maybe colonialism and, and having kind of those critical questions um i think for me i guess like most people
1: um when you're growing up as somebody who's racialized when your body is gendered you understand yourself as like um placed in specific, a specific kind of location. You understand that the way that people interact with you or the way that um, uh, your lives are kind of, the way your life is mapped out um, is determined by these kinds of oppressive structures. So I think uh, growing up working class and understanding very clearly from a young age that there were specific trajectories for people for for the people who I grew up with or the people who I you know went to school with that for me was when I I began to really think or or question at least why things were the way that they were and then in school I was a really avid reader and um I think you know I really pin it down to year 11 sociology for me is when I I started to develop a, a language for this thing that I was um feeling I, I understood and knew what feminism was before that obviously I understood and knew what race um was before that and how it operated but that to me I I, I chart that as a moment or one of the key moments in in the kind of journey of a critical consciousness um because I was introduced to schools of thought and political genealogies that were interested in I guess questioning our material conditions questioning why the way um uh questioning why the world is structured or organized in a specific way and why people, uh, some people seem to have a closer proximity to violence um, because of that. and But also, I guess the historical processes that create those conditions. And it was through reading, you know, um, and, and engaging with Black feminists, reading Marx, reading a whole bunch of people that I had to, you know, engage with for school, at least superficially. I remember when I, you um, when we like learn about Alphazer and like yeah all of these concepts have really kind of stuck um, with me and then obviously when I went to university that was expanded in uh, uh, a much bigger way I was very involved in student organizing and very involved in understanding I guess um, my university's complicity in those histories of dispossession those histories of colonial violence and, and that gave me a very clear sense of what the purpose of the university is and was, right? Like so many universities in the UK were founded as kind of training grounds for colonial officers or, or training grounds for people who would go on to be diplomats or people who would go on to um, extend the nation's influence, you know. And so, yeah, understanding and knowing that and understanding... Um, uh yeah the processes that that produced um uh the university but also produced my learning conditions produced my life was was really key for
0: me. yeah no I think um just going back to kind of like where you were talking about like doing sociology in year 11 like I feel like mm-hmm. my like, I feel like GCSE sociology for me as well was really like a like an awakening in a sense. Yeah. Like, we were already kind of having these questions, but then to be in a space in a classroom and, like, where you're introduced to theory and, like, you have a mm. teacher who's telling you, like, these are the questions that you should be having. Like, it's almost yeah. kind of, like, feels like a, like a safe space in a sense. Yeah.
1: And it's also, I think it gives you a, a framework, uh, like a language and then a kind of apparatus to to understand what's happening to you. And that to me is, like, one of the greatest gifts you can give someone because if you don't I think a lot of things go unmentioned people just don't speak about you know um yeah the impact of these structures on them things are accepted as if they were normal and I think the Mm. role of theory is to to denaturalize the world we live in and to to point to the fact that it's not normal that we live under these conditions. And it's yeah. and and that those conditions have a um a very real impact on our ability to relate to one another, our ability to, you know, exist in meaningful and transformative ways, our ability to love,
0: even our ability to survive at the most basic level, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you said that you were a strong reader. Um, what kind of book? Or what authors specifically do you think kind of inspired your journey into feminism the most?
1: I think um, I, um, I, I was kind of birthed from a black feminist tradition. And so it it, it was the, the authors that you know would come to mind for, from that. People like Hooks, people like Audre Lorde, people like Gail Lewis. Um, you know, Stella Dadzi, really understanding um, the history of, of Black women's organizing in the US, but also in the UK was quite formative for me in in um, developing a political framework that allowed me to synthesize lots of different political genealogies. And by that, I mean, what I saw in the Black feminist tradition was were committed Marxists. I saw people who were, you know abolitionists like proto abolitionists in some sense I saw people um, who had a very strong critique of like uh, heteropatriarchy had you know a a strong allegiance um, to a queer way of living and that allowed me to understand that um, being part of a historical or political tradition or a methodology which is what I think feminism is needn't mean that you are married to the idea that the world um, that liberation looks like one thing or that there's one route to to that success and so I not success success is the wrong word but there's one route to that I guess vision or whatever and so for me reading widely like alongside Ben I was also reading at the same time like Gramsci and and um yeah and and being able to really just uh think about those movements together or think about those writers Mm -hmm. Think about the ways that they informed each other was really important, and then obviously, um, I, I started to read more um, theory that's emerging at the moment. So people like you know Tina Campt, Christina Sharp. There's a whole kind of uh, movement to study Black life, and so I, I'm interested in that in the work that I'm doing. Um, it's always hard to name authors because I think it's a way of pinning down what kind of thinker you are, and. Mm. I I guess I'd like to to pride myself on the idea that I I take from I, I take hopefully what is meaningful from lots of different um radical political uh, traditions like I remember reading Angela Davis's biography Assassin's Shakur's biography um yeah but also you know um reading about you know the miners strike reading about um the the movements of solidarity between uh like solidarity between movements that otherwise would have been considered disparate. And that to me is really important. It's like where are not only the points of commonality, but where where do
0: political traditions meet in in a sense, you know? Thank you. And just before we kind of unpack, I guess, your educational journey and obviously talk about your work now, would you mind just giving us a bit of like a breakdown of like your academic background?
1: Yeah. Um unfortunately i'm still i'm still here um <laughs> i did an undergraduate degree in english and then i did a, a master's in gender studies and now i'm doing a phd um but, but i guess my i guess my broadly my educational journey i i guess i kind of flirted with the idea like when I i did an english degree at cambridge and Learned little to nothing, and so I I did a gender studies master's because I was interested in actually learning something, and so I, yeah, and 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 that it had is kind of what propelled me to I guess stay in academia, and then it seemed like a an obvious choice to do a PhD because there were still things I was interested in, and I feel like I've had in the institutions that I've been to, I did my masters at um, Soas doing my PhD at Westminster, I feel like I've gotten a real sense of um, different educational environments, but also the mm-hmm. effects of marketization on universities. You know, like I've been around long enough, even though I wasn't of the, the fees like generation, I think I've been around long enough to, to have witnessed many rounds of strikes. And so I see yeah. in academia, not a bright future but one um, where so much of what continues to draw me here or so much of what continues to to keep me here is about the intellectual um, connections that I make with other people and about producing, I'm interested in producing a kind of knowledge that is um, resistant and kind of committed and, you know, doing a PhD allows me to do that whilst also doing other things. So, yeah.
0: I didn't know that you studied your master's at SOAS and if I'm right, you studied English at Cambridge, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm keen to kind of just understand, I guess, your experience of being like a young person of colour in, I guess, like a predominantly white space for like during your undergrad, like what do you feel like are some of the major challenges that BAME students kind of face in historically white institutions?
1: I think that, um, for me, the relationship I have to it now is much more ambivalent. I think at the time, um, especially when you're a student of colour or or you're a working class student, it can seem like the arena of politics is your place within an elite institution. But I think, having been someone who's organised, you know, in the university and outside of it, I have realized that you know th- the political stakes are not whether elite universities admit more students of color. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they should exist. And and that's a that's a kind of key distinction in in I guess in my politics is that I'm I that I I can chart the growth of my politics I guess from understanding that um, resistance within the institution was what I could do whilst I was there, but I have no allegiance to its continuation, or I have no allegiance to um, the deeply unjust systems that keep it in place. Right? Like I, I in in all of the work that I'm doing, and in the feminist thinking that I'm trying to, I guess, put out into the world, I'm interested in uh, reorganizing how we live, and and in that reorganization. Cambridge won't exist, hopefully, <laughs> or the, the university won't be the site of um all knowledge production. That's what interests me now, more than that. Um yeah. for me, my, my experience within the institution, um, I had a great time because I was organizing and because mm. that's not to say obviously, you know, um there were it, it was immensely challenging in lots of ways, but because I went in with an orient with a specific orientation which was to make my time here worthwhile by doing things that weren't being in the library from nine to 7 p.m. I ha- I was able to have experiences that not only shaped my politics, but gave me a critical framework. That's because mm-hmm. I organized, I was there when students were, um, uh, when they took over the, the vice chancellor's office, um, when they occupied buildings, when they, when they attempted to hold the university to account in lots of different ways, we were there on the picket lines with striking workers. That to me was the best education. Nothing I learnt in the classroom really has
0: stuck with me, mm. if I'm honest. <laughs> Thank you for that honesty. And obviously, you're currently on a collaborative doctoral studentship with the Centre for Research and Education in Arts and Media, also known as CREAM at Westminster, with the support of obviously the Stuart Hall Foundation and Techni2. Um, Congratulations on that. I mean, what an achievement on top of everything that you've done so far. Um, Thank you. I was gonna ask, was doing a PhD? Well, I guess you answered this already. Doing a PhD, I guess, was always a part of your plan. But was this specifically something that kind of fell into your lap? Like, did you have an idea of doing a PhD on another topic or in something else? Like, what? I'm interested in that.
1: I wouldn't say it um, was always part of the plan. I would oh. say it was t- it was timely. <laughs> I was <laughs> kind of, you know, um, yeah. I was I was thinking. I, I, I had done my masters on um, looking at the cultural production of feminist organizers, and I finished my thesis. And I had more to say. I, w- I was more interested in in the political utility of the imagination and its and its role in sustaining um, uh, political movements. Its role in defining the sh- the long and short term political demands of people who are moving against the state or people who are making um, critical interventions into public space by direct action. There was more to say there. And so I wanted, I guess I was, I began thinking about a way to say it and and, um, the opportunity just kind of arose. And so I I thought about my proposal and I thought about how I might um, use uh, all of the research that I had already done about the imagination but also use my hunch about um what I think the material purpose of the uh, imagination is um in political organizing to kind of further that by you know um putting it into a document sending it off and having someone approve me to do this kind of work um yeah
0: yeah. and could you just talk us through I guess the like the the focus of this PhD like the kind of themes and topics that it covers
1: so I'm, i am mainly look at the uses of the imagination in black culture production specifically looking at how liberatory move, movements and groups um conceive of the imagination how it impacts um their understanding of the work that they're doing in relation to the present and past and how the imagination can help us rethink the idea that the past present and future are distinct temporal regimes I think more than like um a study of utopia or more than a study of like um what an ideal society is I'm trying to make the argument that I think there is a material connection between um us understanding the the uses of the imagination and our impetus to resist state violence our, our impetus to um mm-hmm. develop strategies to build uh, to 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 deal with um ongoing political crises of um, multiple different natures. I think often my work gets called Mm -hmm. hopeful, which I think is interesting because I don't think it's hopeful. I think it's more trying to pinpoint um, how the imagination can leave the realm of the subjective, can leave um the realm of like my my that my capacity to imagine is different to your capacity to um to imagine so that it might be drawn upon by lots of different people in order to sustain the work that they're doing right we think when we think about imagining it it seems deeply personal but I think that um cultivating a collective imagination that allows us to think beyond the given to think beyond. the limits of the world as we know it, it is in, an incredibly important tool in surviving it or at least in naming the conditions that we seek to end mm-hmm.
0: thank you I think we kind of do I guess a portion of that like in our project here like I think obviously art you know we all want to be able to see like a decolonized university but we don't necessarily know what that looks like but the fact that we don't know what that looks like shouldn't kind of dampen or like kind of hinder the what like our ideas that we like our ideation and how we dream together and how we reimagine like a different kind of university or kind of education system in general
1: I think crucially a decolonized university would not be a university I think that 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 to me is is the crucial point and and to to approach decolonization as a principle understanding its historical, the seriousness of its historical provocation Mm -hmm. um, in terms of you know people seeking independence from colonial rule Mm -hmm. and not having that be um, kind of devalued or watered down or lessened when applied to the university is is really important. I think much many people who are who are part of um organizing groups in universities we've seen a real wave of what i think is genuinely critical thought about the place of the university in colonial history it's it's ongoing relationships with neocolonialism etc um but i think it's important that that doesn't that the university doesn't become the site in which decolonization um is fought for right that we understand actually that though this language is helpful in galvanizing organizing us though it's meaningful to make that demand um that can't be the end point of of what we're talking about right because in many ways thinking about decolonization within the bounded walls of the university is ridiculous like it is Mm -hmm. but it is meaningful in i think in the ways that it brings us together in order to ask critical questions even if those questions are are wrong you know or even if those questions are not necessarily um the the, the most radical ones that we could be asking you know mm-hmm.
0: yeah thank you and how are you finding the kind of research process of the PhD so far like at what point are you kind of at at the moment
1: <sighs> you and my supervisor would like to know <laughs>
0: um i am i
1: guess i'm i'm doing what could be called field work and i'm doing interviews and i'm mainly looking at archival material i think what's great about doing a practice-based phd is that i've been able to bring my own practice into it and i'm a writer like Mm i so so there are elements of i guess what could be called speculative writing in it um but writing back to material in the archive writing back to cultural objects Mm -hmm. is a big part of this project and so that's the stage that I'm at which is most interesting I'm trying to craft um s- stories responses interventions based on a history that I don't know a history that I'm trying to um to to kind of cleave open in a different way um mm-hmm. and yeah it's just been exciting I think to go to the archives and see what you kind of know theoretically to be true which is that nobody really liked each other and everybody was fighting and um there were serious disagreements about strategy in relation to the question of what will be done what would be done about racialized gendered experience under thatcher um and even further back and that that's yeah it's it's, to me it's incredibly exciting i feel like i'm i feel like a big nerd whenever i go um to the archive for that reason because it's heartening to see that at at any given time even though the present seems to extend and extend and be drawn out and not um even even though we we seem to be at this juncture where there's no kind of room to move or change um what seems to be the inevitability of you know life under a conservative government or Mm -hmm. or misery or whatever it's heartening to go back to the archive and see that people have asked have, have not only existed in the same conditions, if not worse, but they've asked the same critical questions. They've they've yeah. opened up junctures from which to provide support, solidarity, mutual aid to keep each other alive, to educate their children properly when um their children were not being educated adequately by the state. I think the history of supplementary schools in this country is, is a real testament to the will of um, people with a critical consciousness to not allow their children to be swallowed by mm-hmm. a school system. And I think in, in movements for um, a more liberated approach, uh, movements that seek, I think, to question the role of the university in imparting knowledge, I have a lot to learn also from the, those movements who from below have recognised that um, their children were not being taught history as their children were of being taught at the very least a critical history and so they had to intervene.
0: I also wanted to dedicate some time to kind of talking about one of your books, Feminism Interrupted, Disrupting Power. And can I just say like what an incisive and just beautifully written like text this is. Like you cover like a lot of interesting topics from reproductive justice, trans inclusionary feminism, sex work, prison abolition, and on top of like the histories of legislation and feminist movements in the UK. And honestly, like a lot of those Uh, topics and like details that you unpack were relatively new to me so I think you know this book is also great for people who are interested in contemporary feminism but also at the kind of like the beginning of that kind of journey and yeah I just wanted to kind of discuss with you today the process of creating the piece and I guess like the journey you took before writing it too when did you start to kind of look at feminist theory particularly kind of like liberal feminism through a critical lens uh
1: I think that's a really good question and and I first want to say that um thank you for saying that about feminism interrupted (laughs) I think I think that my uh what I wanted to do with that book was precisely that like to 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 understand, I think there's there's a common narrative that when we come to radical political genealogies, we have to start slow. We have to first go through liberal feminism before we realize that yeah. the 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 promises that liberal feminism offers are face, are kind of false, have nothing to do with us, are actively damaging, and then we move on to a more radical orientation. And I guess what I was trying to do with feminism interrupted was to trust my audience enough, um, like I like um, the most generous theorists do. To say actually you're capable of understanding or you're capable of recognizing um, why you know the answer to sexual violence is not more prisons, or why sex work must be decriminalized, or why abortion on demand is a limited demand, right? Like you're you're capable of um yeah, you're you're capable of, of kind of grappling um with those things. And it's important, I think, in in um allowing people to see that feminism is more than just uh, this thing that is wielded by liberal feminists to justify specific actions. It's a, a political methodology that we can use to think about our freedom and the, the freedom of other people. And that's a kind of serious orientation. So so when it comes to, I guess, thinking critically about liberal um, feminism, I think really from an early age, I, I was drawn feminist thinking that's that was my route towards um into being I guess uh radicalized or having a critical consciousness and I felt disappointed when I read Mm. major feminist texts and thought not only does this have nothing to do with me but it also it it offers no reflections solutions um no invitation to change materially how we live right so that uh, a a second quote unquote second wave feminist concern about you know the body about aesthetics about a particular um uh anxiety about uh heterosexual relationships etc that never appealed to me as the the ground on which our uh political demands should be staked. I recognized from my own upbringing and also from, from seeing how other people live that our questions, the questions that feminists should, have, should be asking and a large proportion of them are, were questions that had to do with survival, had to do with material conditions, had to do with work, labour, reproduction, capitalism, <laughs> um, and were really invested in providing solutions, um, to not solutions, but we're really invested in um, in providing a critical thought that could push us along um, in our understanding of those systems of do- domination. I think of people like Summer James, you know, people um, uh, like the Italian autonomists. There are there are whole kind of you know um, junctures at which feminists, in particular, have been fighting with each other about what the what the um what is to be done about this world mm-hmm. and I saw in more radical orientations a real questioning that appealed to me to say the law and policy cannot be the only thing to say there is a reason why you feel uncomfortable um in the presence of the police to say liberal institutions can never be transformed by um via representation or liberal identity politics or you know like um those were the things that appealed to me and that's where I kind of began to think critically about what feminism offers which is the promise of a world free from violence you know the promise of transformed relations and in order to transform our interpersonal gender um relations we have to transform our relation to money you know our relation to the land our relation to the ways that we live housing you know these are these were the big questions that I think um really pushed me towards that critique and if if feminism interrupted as like a building stepping stone as a book that people pick up and then realize two years later is no longer useful to them it's supposed to be disposable in that way it's supposed to be like Okay, this is the first thing I read and that that made me that led me to this and this and this. And now I have a deeper understanding of these systems.
0: Thank you. And, you know, like I said, you explore like a variety of issues and theory. But how did you actually like decide what topics you'd be examining and which of those would actually become chapters? Because I'm sure you had like a whole like a whole big list of like different kind of ideas that you wanted to address
1: yeah I think this is actually um, this is actually the easiest thing to do as someone who was involved in organizing. it was really clear to me um at the time that I was writing it where the where mainstream liberal feminism was failing. and that the task of this book was not to like plug that failure, but it, it's clear to me that liberal feminists are not concerned with the decriminalization of sex work or they're they're, con- they're concerned with the kind of feminism that is interested in fortifying and propping up the police the criminal justice system um, other forms of carceral punishment and so it became easy for me to say okay this book needs um, an abolitionist critique in it mm-hmm. or it became easy for me to say the liberal narrativization of um, the feminist movement via waves and by a feminist movement that supposedly begins with the um suffragettes is is supposed to is intended to discipline our imagination, is intended to allow us to to think that feminism um asks us to demand less than we deserve, really. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so it became easy then to to take something, for example, that seems um the question of food, the question of the body that seems to be intensely individual you know when we think about eating disorders when we think about the gendered nature of the pressures um that, that exist for different people's bodies um it, it was easy to take something like that and then try and, and and attach a real structural critique to it to say food is not just about you know the things we eat it's about how it, it's about the conditions of the workers that produce that food it's about the conditions of the workers who are um often low paid often experiencing uh all forms of violence from employers often have no right to um, labor law that has some connection to our understanding of food so that mm-hmm. in transformed conditions if you know food were not produced in such an exploitative manner perhaps our interpersonal relationships to food could also therefore be transformed you know that that to me was my attempt to marry um kind of structural critique with um what liberal feminism banishes to the realm of the personal or what liberal feminism banishes to the realm of the unthinkable you know liberal feminism is happy to sacrifice any number of black people to uh to death by the police by the state um because they don't have an answer for this question of why if institutions are Consistently being called out, or why, if institutions are consistently being diversified, does uh, contact with the police for so many Black people mean death? They have no, they're they're very willing to um, sacrifice people for the sake of the argument. And I was interested in putting forward an idea of feminism that refuses to leave anybody behind, refuses to say one person's death at the hands of the police is too many. And so, what do we do? with that how do we you know make a political argument around that basis
0: and I guess this is something that is discussed more openly by authors of fiction but do you think there's a similar kind of emotional realm for non-fiction writers as well particularly those who write like more sociological texts like was that something that you kind of experienced whilst writing this book and what helped you kind of like get through that I think um
1: the best theory that I've read, I was actually um, doing something uh, to commemorate Bell Hooks. And mm-hmm. I think about her essay theory as liberatory practice. And I think about how the best writing that I've experienced or like the writing of someone like um, Diana Prima, um, Audre Lord, et cetera, so many other people um, is its ability to effectively shift people and by that I mean its ability to change the shape of our emotional um landscape as it were you know mm. and so I think for me the question is less like what was the emotional toll in in writing I think what I'm trying to say I guess I think that the best theory takes that emotional toll and it's and is uh invested in trying to get readers to make that effective leap or that emotional shift in a landscape the the difference between reading a text um and being transformed by it like the difference between beginning a text thinking something is not possible and ending a text being like something is possible you know Mm. that's a huge that's that's i don't like to think in terms of wins and losses but that's a huge um Uh, that's a very important shift that's happening and so I guess yes speaking in terms of emotional toll it's less I I think whenever people are writing about violence or whenever people are writing about um worlds a world that continues to exploit a a world that continues to um to to cause untold misery Mm -hmm. that's painful but I think the best writing utilizes that pain for the purposes of critical invitation or for the purposes of allowing other people um into a space in which more becomes possible by virtue of what has been written or by virtue of what they are seeing or what they are experiencing
0: yeah thank you I think it's really powerful how you're able to kind of look at it in that way as well and think of mm. it in terms of kind of like what the audience feels what do you want them to feel when like mm. that shift as well thank you mm. Uh, can you remember, like, any responses to the book that, like, really stood out to you? Like, perhaps a comment or, like, a review that really, like, moved you?
1: I think the thing generally that that um, makes me feel like the book is useful, more so than, than even good, useful is when people say, um, this book made me, pick up another book or this Mm. book made me want to know more about a specific school of thought it made me interested in Marxist feminism it made me interested in um, you know the history of OAD or someone like Olive Morris or communism or Claudia Mm. Jones or it made me interested in those things that to me is I guess what is um, most important and and I hope I, I hope in ways that I hope for my my writing to be galvanizing more than anything I hope it it does that work of allowing people to see that more is possible than what we think is possible and that we we can act as if we can have those things that we would like to have and that desire and strategy needn't mean needn't be separated that those two things can coexist that those two things fuel and feed each other and that in order to enact those liberated um futures that we seek to build we are going to have to one not only sacrifice things but we're going to have to ask ourselves practically what we're willing to do in terms in terms of organizing that that to me when people say oh I picked up this book and I left and I got involved in organizing or now I'm you know, doing mutual aid or now
0: I'm doing that to me is what's what's critical. That's that's important. And lastly, what kind of advice would you give to aspiring kind of like feminist writers? Read widely. Even those those
1: uh feminists that are not good because you you understand what what makes their you it's important I think to understand their appeal in order Mm -hmm. to to strengthen your own critique. Um, I would say that feminism is is a, as I said in the book, hopefully a living uh, breathing set of principles. It, yeah. it comes to life or is an, enacted in behaviors and in our actions, not only interpersonal, but I see feminism really as a as a promise, a political promise to say, I'm not interested in the this world as it is. I see the pain that it causes and I'm committing my life to ending it. I yeah. think I would say also keep keep open, keep willing and able to change your mind and shift. I think the approach that I've taken of, of trying to synthesize um, lots of different radical traditions means it's easy for me not to get caught up in fights, <laughs> petty fights, not that, you know, tensions are, are not useful, productive or important, but I think um, approaching texts and approaching other people and other radical traditions with a good faith, as, as well as a criticality, is incredibly important. Mm. Um, I think also I would say organize, you know, don't don't just be a writer who writes. I think mm. that's a shame, <laughs>
0: really. <laughs> Thank you no worries so for our final segment i wanted to kind of revisit our discussion of higher education but instead kind of look at the institution through i guess a feminist lens what do you think makes the current higher education system particularly kind of like non-feminist so many things (laughs) i think i think
1: um non-feminist is such an interesting word here because i think the thing that, that make it non-feminist are the things that make it unjust you know Mm, marketization the fact that education is not free that's that's a major um impediment not only to women in higher education but to everyone and that's also Mm -hmm. an important feminist principle right because feminism is not only concerned with um the advancement of women you know um Mm -hmm. I think there are lots of other things that make universities um incredibly hostile places we look at how um universities are colluding with the government around things like prevent that is you know essentially giving uh supervisors lecturers professors license to spy and surveil um students but also to pass their information on to the government we we also look at like the way that the um the university colludes with the home office. That's another huge, important part of a regulatory system in which students um, fear organising, they fear stepping out of line, they fear missing class because it threatens their immigration status. We think about the way that policing and the police have become normalised on campuses across um, the country. And I think what's really interesting here is that you will find if you look hard enough many feminist defenses of police on on university grounds because quote unquote the police keep us safe we know that not only to be false as a, as a feminist principle we know that the more women come in, into contact with um police the more likely they are to experience all forms of violence um and so for me the university is um a space that should be abolished but. a a space that is has must be navigated strategically and so when we're when, when we're thinking about things that make it unfeminist are people being paid a wage that's livable are people um is the hierarchy between um the people who who tend to the grounds or the people who keep the university running in a practical sense and the the professors the lecturers is is that being firmly kept in place and if it is how does that add to the indignity of a workplace that that's an unfeminist principle for me mm-hmm. um and so yeah i could sit here and go on and on and on about like the the many things that um create an environment in which the the university can never be feminist quote unquote feminist and often that will have little to do with attainment you know obviously Mm. attainment is important but when we think about gender within the institution we think mainly about two key points sexual violence and attainment gaps and Mm. it's not to say that those two things are not important they absolutely are but in order to widen the conversation we have to understand that if a university is colluding with the home office the police other government regulations it makes sense then that the burden of proof in a lot of universities in in regards to sexual violence um was once a criminal one you know and mm-hmm. so it, it, if we are to transform or not even transform to make the university livable whilst we're in it before it goes there are you know questions that have to be asked around um what the purpose of our feminism is is, is that making more livable space for everyone or is that um a singular narrative about um that essentializes gender right and essentializes um women's place in the university Mm
0: -hmm. thank you and to quote you in feminism interrupted um in my question in what ways can we kind of take feminism out of the kind of realm of words and theories and make it a kind of living, breathing set of principles in higher education? I think um, for me, it's about linking up,
1: uh, organising on campus. I think my experience was that because there were so few of us at any given time engaged in organising, we all knew each other. The the anti-fees marketization people <laughs> were the same people that came to you know the Cambridge defend education meetings the same people that came mm-hmm. to fly meetings the same people who came to the women's campaign the same people that came to the BME campaign there was there needs to be a synthesis of Shashi's goals and tactics because if we begin with the material if we begin um with labor if we begin with that question that affects all of us that is that is something that's um not a singular issue you know there are no singular issues you know and so there is a tendency i think when people come into university to be drawn to identity-based movements which i i that was me i'm completely um i completely understand that but the movements that i were was a part of and the black feminist um identity-based movements of you know um the 70s 80s those had a material basis it wasn't just let's let's gather to speak about our experience of being racialized it was what critically strategically what demands are we making how are we through direct action or otherwise um uh making sure that our experience of gendered racialization um don't just exist in the realm of the ling- um, aren't just combated in the realm of the linguistic. Or in the realm of, like, I have gone to a space where I can share with others and that makes me feel like I can exist in this space. That's important, but that's not, in and of itself, a form of resistance, you know? It's a form of survival, which is important, but it's not um, as important as marrying that or or it's not as important as connecting and joining that um, with strategic... Um, hitting the university where where
0: it hurts, you know,
1: mm-hmm. um, strategically. Yeah.
0: Thank you. And what do you think university-based decolonization projects like this one, or just social justice projects across universities in general, can learn from radical feminist movements in wider society? That those movements didn't base their entire
1: political vision on the university that they extended beyond the university and that if if some of the people involved in those movements did go to university their aim was always how do we steal from the university how do we make sure that all the resources the books the articles journals etc that are Um, available to us by virtue of our inclusion in the university are also available to people we we organize with outside. How can we redirect money and other funding outside of the university instead of, you know, fortifying its presence? I think so many people have theorized, you know, what the purpose of the, the university is. I think about like Walter Rodney's idea of the guerrilla intellectual all of that must be opposed to the very shiny, neoliberal university that's in, that's um, obsessed with student feedback and employability and all of that kind of stuff. We're in a very kind of bleak moment. And so I think those movements have to um, really take from others that even though this juncture or this you know period feels overwhelming or it feels as if it's impossible to see through, education was once free you know mm-hmm. so it can be free again <laughs> even yeah. as you know a, a small demand it can be free again and to not lose mm-hmm. sight of that even as um, institutions consolidate on the feeling of misery that is created when um everyone's kind of on edge teachers are on edge because they can't because they're being evaluated by students and we're told that um we we should only think about education through the lens of like how much money am i paying for xyz lecture that's an Mm -hmm. ideology that's really infected the way that students think so that education isn't this expansive transformative um potentially transgressive uh act or Mm. relation between students between teacher and student it's a financial transaction and i think alongside strategic planning and making demands and campaigning but also direct action these groups have to be aware of undoing also that ideological arm and I think strikes often we've seen like a range of strikes happening across the country strikes are often that space where where suddenly students recognize that actually the people that i think are the people that are my lecturers are also on precarious contracts they're also making demands from the boss who who is not you know who has a lot of money and is is not intent to give that money up so that workers mm. you know have a pension you know the, the, these are these are the points i think of tension that really allow people to see um what what could be possible in a university and to see that to, to see the prevalence of um the the ideological sleight of hand that is you know neoliberalism and so I think the the kind of task is twofold people have to change minds structures of feeling but they also have to like make those critical interventions when they where they
0: can thank you and unfortunately we're coming to the end of our interview here but as something as I like to end on what is something you'd like to see happen or see develop within higher education in the next 10 years.
1: Well, question I'd like education to be free. <laughs> That's, I think that, I, I think in my rants I've I've made that clear. I think <laughs> yeah. free education would would once again rattle and shake the very foundations of what a university is, what its purpose is. And also, yeah, I'm not saying every conversation stems from that, but I do think it would be a major point of destabilisation, which would be crucial for for any of the other discussions that we're having um, to also, you know, um, have kind of leverage. I think what we're going to see in the next couple of years is undoubtedly more action from workers of all kinds cleaners um university staff we're going to see more and more disruptive disruption to a marketized education system because it cannot stand it's not one in which people are able to make a living and so it it will always be disrupted hopefully at the point um of use and so i'm i'm settling into the fact that like this is we're in this for the long haul but Mm -hmm. I think free education would be a starting point
0: thank you for that Lola no worries I just want to say what a pleasure it's been to just have you on the podcast and just thank you for sharing your thoughts and ideas with us today like I'm really pleased we got to have this conversation especially about your book which is so amazing, so I highly recommend it to everyone in the audience, and of course it's just been nice getting to know a little bit about yourself, and I look forward to seeing you complete your PhD, and reading it, but um, yeah, you're worth- Me
1: too, I look forward to completing my PhD as
0: well, <laughs> thank you so much, thank you so much for having me, and for
1: um, your careful and considered questions, I hope my answers don't just become a big rant <laughs> but um, I really enjoyed it and yeah good luck with the podcast as well
0: to find out more information access our tools or get in touch visit us at blog.westminster.ac.uk psj